Shalom, this is Reverend John Farad, and welcome to Lesson 86, Part 2, in the continuing series of the Gospel According to Moses in the book of Genesis. So, we're going to go on with this amazing interruption in the saga of Joseph, of the many-colored coat. Because all of a sudden, God has interrupted that story with the story of Judah and Tamar. Now there's two verses we need to consider. And that is the verse right before the Judah and Tamar story and the verse right after the Judah and Tamar story. The Judah and Tamar story is in Genesis chapter 38. So in Genesis 37, verse 36, that's the last verse before the Judah and Tamar story, we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. When we go to the end of chapter 38, the end of the Judah-Tamar story, we look at Genesis 39, verse 1, and it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard. That captain of the bodyguard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So what we do see is we see two very, very similar verses. And Nahum Sarna, who is the great Jewish scholar who wrote the commentary, of, on the book of Genesis in the JPS Torah commentary, he says this seemed, seems to indicate or hint at the fact that God did this on purpose. Something is going on. This interruption of the Judah and Tamar story and the Joseph saga is something that God did on purpose. He, he's showing his orchestrated plan. And we're going to see this in this podcast we're going to see some amazing, amazing connections. And it's all related to Joseph as the paradigm of Yeshua. Joseph as the paradigm of the Messiah, a prototype of the Messiah. Now we left part one with Onan, who is to come to his brother's wife, Tamar, because his brother's wife is his brother is dead, and due to Leverite marriage, he is supposed to fulfill his duty. And God enters the story here and kills Onan. What did Onan do? What did Onan not do? And it's very interesting to see how in rabbinic Judaism and also in Catholicism and into Christianity today. What Onan did not or did do is now even termed Onanism. We have that term right in our own dictionaries today. So what is Onanism? And how is it a glaring mistake of taking the Bible and taking the story out of context? So let's get into our study. We'll deal with the Onan. And then we're going to try to answer the question, why this story? Why Judah and Tamar? What's going on here? What is the purpose of the Lord? So you're ready? Come. Come. 
Let's go study. So, Onan has to follow the ancient Near East practice, the legal law. Judah orders it. We just read it. He tells Onan, you go in, okay, to my son's wife, Tamar, and you've got to do this. He's forming his own Beit Av. You see what I'm saying? He's taking control. He's coming in. He's ordered. I find that interesting. He leaves the Beit Av and he's forming his own. Onan, um, he does not do what he's supposed to do. And we would basically say that that is called coitus interruptus. That is the term that we would use today. I want to go into uh, Dennis Prager's commentary in Genesis. In his audio commentary, he went on this for a half an hour. So I'm just going to break this up. I think it's important. We know what Onan did. Some traditional Jewish and Christian teachings interpreted Onan's sin as masturbation, which is the term, origin of the term, Onanism. It's in the, it's in the dictionary. Look it up. However, the Torah clearly states Onan's sin was his refusal to complete sexual relations with Tamar, thereby depriving her of any of offspring, refusing to perpetuate her dead brother's name, and by implication using Tamar solely for his sexual gratification. Therefore, Onan's sin was not masturbation. However, though the Torah does not mention masturbation, it does not anywhere, later Jewish religious law's opposition to masturbation was based on this story. Later Christian opposition was as well and is largely based on the New Testament's also prohibition against lusting after a woman, one who is not married. I just wanted to let you know that for a Jewish boy, when they read this story, and I think every man in here, I remember Dennis Prager made this comment, and I'm trying to treat it lightly, and it said, if, if this was masturbation, okay, and God kills anybody who masturbates, there would not be one male left on the face of the earth. Is this situation with Onan very similar to where the Jewish people would call Jesus Yeshu? You know, to try to, well, it could possibly be, okay? Uh, but definitely here, when we look at this, he definitely did not show love toward his brother to actually legally do what he was legally bound to do. Now, what I want to mention to this again is Onan was killed by God. It says Yahweh killed him. The Lord, here we go again. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not a God, our God. The only God is involved in this story. So Christians and Jews have an awful misuse of Torah. Awful misuse. A Jewish boy reading this would say, I will get killed if I masturbate. I grew up as a Catholic. Masturbation was a mortal sin in the Catholic Church, which means you would burn in hell. And I'm telling you, for Christian young men, Catholics, and also for Jewish young men, it has a market effect on us. So I wish you had a chance to listen to the 30-minute uh, exposition that uh, Dennis Prager did on his tape. Uh, it is amazing. Anyway, Yahweh, our God, is an integral part of these events. God is orchestrating his plan of redemption. 
something is really going on because God, I mean, Judah leaves and all of a sudden God shows up. Now, Tamar returns. It says this, this is really interesting. In Hebrew, it says she returns to her Beit Av. Her Beit Av is with Judah because Judah is like her, his father. He would not give Shelah, okay, the youngest one to her. He said, go back to your dad. So she does. She leaves the Beit Av. Judah is supposed to protect her. That's the Beit Av. He found her as a wife for her son and the son died. He's responsible. She goes back to the Beit Av of her other father. This is interesting. Oh, and by the way, she didn't go to Hebron because Jacob's not her father. She's a, she's a Canaanite and she's a pagan. So let's go to Genesis 38, starting in verse 13. Oh, and remember that after this, Judah is going to go to sheep shearing with Hira the, uh, from Adullam. So they're going to go to sheep shearing, and that's what's happening. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goes up to Timnah to sheep, uh, shear his sheep. And she put uh, off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is by the way to Timnah. We don't know what uh, Enaim means. It may mean on the way to, okay? The, the Hebrew is very obscure there. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as wife. You see what I'm saying? She was in the bait of her father. She was supposed to be in the bait of Judah. Judah is failing completely, just like his dad. When Yehuda saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face and he turned to her by the way and said, come now, I pray thee, let me come into thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, uh, what wilt thou give me that thou mayst come to me? And he said, I will give thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy cord and thy staff that is in thy hand. And he gave it to her and came into her and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Yehuda went, uh, sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was at Enaim by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Yehu, uh, and he returned to Yehudah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. And Yehudah said, Let her, uh, let her take it to her, uh, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thus, and that thus have not found her. When you read this section, it says that she was a temple prostitute, okay, in one verse, and in another verse it says she's a harlot. This is interesting because all of the scholars would say, what is God trying to tell you on his view of cult prostitution? Okay, so Tamar, dressed up as a temple prostitute, okay, is called a zana, and that means harlot. In another verse, though, the zana is called kadesh, Okay, and that is the word used for temple prostitute. So we're basically seeing from Nahum Sarna's point of view that the Torah is trying to tell us their view, God's view, of temple prostitution. Now remember, temple prostitution, uh, when you went to a pagan church service, whether it was Greek or Roman or Canaanite, there were female prostitutes for the men and there were male prostitutes for the women.
and I will borrow a joke, I mean, they, they didn't have a problem with church growth, okay, whatsoever. <laughs> so Judah has sex with a cult prostitute, and I wanted to take a look at this because it, it's fairly clear that Tamar is a Canaanite. She's acting as a, she's dressed as, or disguises herself as a cult prostitute. The Canaanite, and what I'm reading now is from the IVP BBC, the InterVarsity Press uh, Bible Commentary on the Old Testament. And they make a comment on the Canaanite culture and cult prostitution. Now remember, what was Judah doing? He was going to the sheep shearing, yes? And remember, what did she wear? The Canaanite culture utilized cult prostitution as a way of promoting fertility. Devotees of the mother goddess Ishtar, or Anat, would reside at or near shrines and would dress in a veil as the symbolic bride of the god Baal, or El. Men would visit the shrine and use the services of the cult prostitutes prior to planting their fields or sheep shearing or the period of lambing. In this way, they gave honor to the gods and reenacted the divine marriage in an attempt to ensure fertility and the prosperity of their fields and herds and prophets and shearing. Judah has sex with a cult prostitute. It's shearing time. And Canaanites use this so that if you do this, this is going to be like a prayer, having sex with a cult prostitute. He knows this. What's he doing? He's, sell, he's selling out. He's getting so involved in this culture. And again, it's further evidence, again, to me, when you understand this, okay, we understand the culture, the Canaanite culture, it's further evidence of his rebellion against his dad, Jacob. I mean, that event where they tried to kill Joseph was so severe. I mean, this family is really falling apart. By the way, Tamar gets the size. And what, she, what is she going to get from, from Judah? What is she going to get? A kid. A female goat. Cheap. Okay. Yehuda's like his dad, a cheapskate. Okay. It's Gedi Azi, a young female goat. I mean, it's worth nothing. And Jacob is probably rich in terms of having large flocks and so on. And then she says, how can I be so sure you'll do this? I, I mean, I need a pledge. So he gives his, his seal and his staff. And this is a big deal to give the seal and staff. Uh, Dr. Sarna in the JPS Torah commentary, he says this. It must be that, and again, we don't know, okay? But he's guessing that Yehuda must have been so rich, okay, um, that giving a kid away, that's not a big deal. And he probably could do it very quickly. So he probably wasn't even worried about his staff or his seal. This was very important. This was his identification. This was his signature. Now, when we get to the rest of the story, what's really interesting is this, is Tamar's character. So she's pregnant now by Judah. And as we read, probably this is all legal. In the ancient culture, from 3,900, 3,500 years ago. She seems to be a woman of noble character because she does not want to destroy her father-in-law. Because remember, he, she presents the staff 
and the seal to him and said, I am pregnant by the one who owns these. So he, she didn't go yelling out anything at all. No, it was a very indirect accusation. So again, she did not want to destroy her father-in-law. And Judah praises her. A noble daughter-in-law. A woman, and here's the word that's used, tzedakah. She is righteous. More righteous than me. He recognizes his failure, okay, as Beit Av in his own father's house and his sin. Now what's fascinating is this what turns him back. Why? We'll see that in just a little bit. Because Judah's not done. He is the beginning of the tribe of Judah. And who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. What turns him back? Let's consider. I want to go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we read, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob, uh, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez. I just like that. Isn't it interesting? It's a, and to Jacob, Judah and his brothers. Doesn't bring up Joseph, anybody else. So, I mean, Matthew was saying Judah is very important. Here he is, okay? And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Here's Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadav, and to Aminadav Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Rahab? Another pagan? Okay. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Isn't this interesting? All of a sudden, Perez, who's the second born, is an ancestor of Jesus by Leverite marriage because of Tamar. And Obed is the son of Ruth by Leverite marriage with Boaz. That is like so cool. Because Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. You can say Judah was the kinsman redeemer. He wasn't because they didn't call it at that time because he was the father-in-law. And as we read in Hittite law, if there was no brother-in-law, okay, she could marry the father-in-law. So isn't this interesting when I read this? Leverite marriage. Judah, Tamar, Boaz, and Ruth. Tamar is a pagan woman. And her children become part of the Beit Av because of Leverite marriage. Ruth, her son, Obed, becomes part of the Beit Av, the descendants of Jesus, okay? The ancestors of Jesus by Leverite marriage, by the kinsman redeemer. And Jesus, he's our kinsman. He's one of us. I'm not trying to say we're Jewish or anything. Kinsman. He's a man. He became a man. And he's the redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. And because of that, because he's the kinsman redeemer, we're in the Beit of the Father. I'm overwhelmed with the truth of John 5.39. All scripture testifies of me. I'm overwhelmed with my view years ago, probably years probably before the year 2000 when I went to Israel with Ray. That the Old Testament, I mean, that's all they had. 
The entire world changed because of the Torah. That's all they had. The whole world changed upside down because the only Bible they had up to 100 AD and maybe even to 120, 150 AD, the only Bible they really had was the Torah, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. Wow. So I'm having a ball. And I just want to share my excitement with you. We haven't got much time left. So I've got to hit you with this. We're done with reading chapter 38. And we have to ask ourselves, we're going to return back to the question. Why is this story here? God, inter God intercedes twice. God, Yahweh. It doesn't say Elohim. It says Yahweh. Why? Why does he come in? He's involved in this story. Is God trying to make a point? Or is he trying to make several points? Something's going on and then the book ends. The last verse of 37, before 38 starts, okay, Joseph is sold to as a slave in Egypt. And the first verse of 39, which we're headed to one of these days, is Joseph is sold as a slave in bookends. Now, I'm going to end off with this because I want to give you the timing. And what I mean by that is this. Joseph is 17, nearly killed, sold, and he's going to Egypt at age 17. Now, we will see this shortly as we get more deeper into the chapters, but you'll probably remember that Joseph was 30 years old. He's 30 when he's second to Pharaoh. And so he's, remember, there's going to be 14 years, seven that are going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, 14 years. So in Genesis 45, 6, we'll be there. He, he's talking about the second year of the famine. Well, that's nine years later, so he's 39, okay? 22 years have passed, and Judah shows up. Judah shows up with the brothers, because Papa, and he's back with the Beit Av. Why? What made him go back? We, there's an unanswered question. We could speculate until the cows come home, or until the kids come home, okay? Those little girl goats, okay? So anyway, because Joseph is 17, finally he's 39, Judas leaves, uh, Judas, Judah leaves when Joseph's 17, has his three sons and so on with Tamar. And what I want to bring up is this, the timing's logical. You think about it. 22 years have passed. That's enough time for chapter 38. For they have the three sons and all of that to transpire, it's realistic. What does God seem to be saying to us? Look at this. Here's the situation. Joseph, 17, we're headed into his life, okay? And at 39, all of a sudden, Judah shows up again. Isn't that interesting? Because now Judah disappears, and he shows up again, and we got to go to 38. It's almost like God is saying, okay, I've got to interrupt this story because... Joseph, Joseph is on his way on camels to Mitzrayim. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, something's going on. So like the prodigal son, God is trying to tell us something. In other words, all this stuff is connected. This story, as one scholar put it, is like an act of an opera. 
And the opera is this whole redemption plan of God. In the opera, you have various acts and various scenes. And what will happen is when a character reappears that was in a previous act, or when a certain topic will come up that was in a previous act, okay, there's a certain musical score that goes along with that person. There's a musical score that goes along with a certain event and so on. It's called a leitmotif in German. And this scholar that Dennis Prager was quoting says, Judah and Tamar's story is an act of an opera because we keep on having these reoccurring, okay, um, melodic lines that appear every place in the opera. The opera being the redemption plan of God. Okay, now these are Jewish scholars, so I'm, I'm actually transferring it to the redemption plan of God all the way through to Yeshua. So it's a, it's a majestic opera, and I really like that picture. So let me give you some of these leitmotifs. Let me give you some of these melodies, okay, that keep on reoccurring. They're in the Judah and Tamar story uh, and how they appear in the overall opera of God's redemption plan. Here's one. This is from Harper's Bible Commentary. Now, I, I find this fascinating. Uh, just as an aside, Dennis Prager is a very devout religious Jew. His whole purpose in his, I mean, his passion is to teach Torah both to Jew and Christian to Jewish people and Gentiles, because the Bible, okay, has meaning for today. And so therefore he wants Christians to get as much out of it as they can, uh, and obviously the Jewish people as well. And he quotes Harper's Bible Commentary, which is an evangelical Christian Bible commentary. And he said it's one of the best commentaries on the Judah Tamar story. And so he said, so for instance... Here's one of those themes. In the Judah Tamar story, you have the birth of twins where the youngest comes out first, okay? Not the oldest. You have the firstborn, then the secondborn. Remember that? And it's the secondborn that comes out. And remember Jacob and Esau. That's the same thing. They're twins, by the way. So you have, you have the twins of Zerah and Perez, and you have a Jacob and Esau. So there's that theme that repeats. Here's another one. You have the deception, okay? The deception of Yehuda. Judah, okay, by Tamar, she's in a disguise, and the whole story involves a kid, a female goat, because Judah says, I will pay you for your services with a female goat and a kid, and all of a sudden you have deception involving a female goat or a kid, remember Jacob and Isaac, okay, Jacob was in disguise, right, and his mother killed a kid, a female goat, and put the skin of the goat to fool Isaac. Same thing. Brothers hate each other. So Joseph's brothers hated him. We know that. Esau hates Jacob. Right after, obviously, Jacob fools Isaac into getting the blessing. Now, it's quoted in here from, from um, um, Sarna's point of view in the JPS that Onan hates Er. er. Er is the firstborn of Judah. Er does something evil, God kills him. Matter of fact, God, Yahweh. And then Onan, Er's younger brother, is supposed to go into Tamar and have children. That's Leverite marriage. And that was legal in those days. That was something everybody did across the cultures. He did not, which implies that he hated his brother because he did not want to do the act of love, okay, towards his brother by actually having his name 
keep on going in terms of the inheritance. So the implication is Onan hated heir. So who got that going on? Here's another one. We have deception again via a goat and the means of identification. So remember what happens. Joseph, his coat, they dipped it in blood. What kind of blood? Goat's blood. And they took it to their dad, Jacob, and he was deceived. Okay. And here we have the same thing is the means of identification. Okay. Was the, um, was the, his staff and his seal. Okay. And so again, we, and the goat was involved in the same thing because that was supposed to be security for, uh, Tamar that, uh, Yehuda or Judah would come back with the goat. Okay. But she ran off. Okay. And that was all part of her plan. The other thing is deception uh, and recognition. Jacob is deceived by his sons when he recognizes Joseph's coat. Judah is deceived by Tamar when he recognizes the seal on the staff. So what's happening here is we have these themes and we can't dismiss the fact that these are repeated in this story. Why? Is God, and again, I, I pose this as a question with no answer. Is God trying to get to us to say these are connected? Something is going on here. Uh, is God saying this is part of my plan? I, I think so. Okay, I really do think so. Uh, for instance, when we go into the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah leaves his family. He leaves the Beit Av. He leaves the protection of the father. And now he's among the Canaanites, and he has three sons, all right? Er does something really, 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 really evil, and God kills him, Yahweh kills him, and the same thing with Onan. But what's interesting is, in that story, Yahweh shows up. The Lord shows up. And you're saying, and it's unexpected. To me, when I read that, I said, wait a minute, that's the Lord. I know what that means. That's a cover. That's a cover word because in Hebrew to be Adonai, but in real Hebrew, okay, you know the Jewish people do not say Yahweh. They don't even write it, okay? So they will put Adonai, which we translate as Lord. So all of a sudden you've got the Lord showing up there. And later on what we have is in this, we see God's control. We see God's design. And we see this in Joseph's life because we're going to go to chapter 45 where he's talking to his brothers. He said, don't you know what you did to me? God had this all planned. He had this under his control so that Israel would be saved, meaning Jacob and his family uh, from the famine. So God's control is over all, of, all over the place. Now, another aspect of this is one of our goals in this, the gospel according to Moses, is to ask ourselves the question, how did the Hebrews hear this story? How did they understand it? What did they see? Because it's interesting, Dr. John Kareed, who has written a number of books on the archaeology of Egypt and how it helps us understand the Torah, okay, in his books, it's clear that Dr. Kareed, matter of fact, I think I have one of them here tonight because we have to quote it. Yeah, Against the Gods. I highly recommend this. Dr. John D. Kareed, uh, and his first book is Against the Gods, Polemic Theology, 
okay, with regards to the polemic against Egypt in the Torah. And his thesis is, you need to, un to understand the Torah, you need to understand Egypt. If you don't understand Egypt, you have no idea what's going on in the Torah. Now, there's many things in the Torah we can't understand, but a lot of it is based upon the fact that they were in Egypt and the Hebrews had actually bought into that culture. So how is God going to reach his people? Because they're the first ones to hear the Torah. And what's Torah? Instruction. So it's God's instruction. And who are the first people to hear it? The second generation of Hebrews probably on the plains of Moab. Moses is dead and all the books are done. So let me share some thoughts to you, some possibilities of how they might have heard it. You have to put yourself in their place. They don't know rabbis. They don't know the Messiah. They don't know Torah. They don't even know the Sabbath yet. Okay, they haven't even come to Sinai. Oh yeah, oh these guys do. Excuse me. They have been at Sinai and the Torah has been given. So they, they know that, but they haven't even been to Israel yet. They don't know anything about Jerusalem. Nothing, okay? But they do know Egypt. Now, one of the things they'd probably be interested in, in this story of Judah and Tamar, is the character of Judah. What tribe leads the Israelites in the desert every time the cloud lifts and goes? Judah. Judah is the lead tribe. And they're saying, why? I mean, this is going to be hundreds of years later. And now they're beginning to see, perhaps, the character of Judah in the story. Because one of the things, he said, don't kill Joseph. He saves Joseph's life. He said, let's sell him. Let's not kill him. Okay? And Reuven, Reuben, the same thing. But Judah is part of that. The other thing is, he's an honorable man. Once he realizes that um, he's been deceived by Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he treats her with honor and a great deal of respect, and, she, and basically says, she is more righteous than me. And so all of a sudden you have this statement that implies, okay, that all of a sudden we're seeing some characteristics of Judah come out uh, in the story. So that's maybe one way that might have helped them understand why is Judah in the lead. Now the second thing is these Hebrews on the plains of Moab, the second generation, these are the children of the first generation. But it could very well be that when they were with their moms and dads before they die out, remember God said to that generation, because you didn't go in, because you didn't believe uh, Joshua and Caleb, okay, and you just believed the bad report, you're not going in. You're all going to die here, but your children will go in. So let's assume that indeed they remember that, they remember being with their parents, and one of the things those Hebrews knew when they're coming out of Egypt is Egypt was a place where the primary focus, the primary, you might say, um, thing that they concentrated on in their religion was the prevention of chaos. And so with regards to chaos, chaos is the Sahara Desert, okay, or the other wilderness in the Sinai. There's cobras there. There's, there's um, jackals out there. There's scorpions out there. You don't go out there. That's chaos. That's death, okay? The other thing is, is that to prevent chaos, in other words, that the Nile would automatically flood correctly each year, recede correctly each year, because otherwise, if that, that doesn't happen, okay, you have a terrible agricultural year. 
It's amazing when you go to Egypt, what they have dated all the way back. I mean, you can go back to the old, uh, the old kingdom. They actually had nilometers. You'll see this in the temples. It's amazing. And all the way from the, um, from the uh, lower Nile, which is the Goshen, okay, and Cairo and that type of stuff, all the way to the upper Nile, you've got nilometers. So with the nilometers, they're able to tell you as the Nile begins its flood, probably wait down, uh, probably by the first or second cataract, they're able to say, oh, look at this. It's at this level at this time. That means it's going to be a good flood or it could be a little higher. And so they can pass the word down the Nile and say things are looking good or looking bad. The whole prevent chaos would be that the Nile is not flooding correctly. So this is Pharaoh's purpose. When you study Egyptian religion, the purpose of Pharaoh's life, okay, was to prevent chaos. Now in Egyptian religion, that means to serve the goddess Ma'at. The goddess Ma'at is the goddess of order and harmony and balance and all things going well. You might call it Shalom because that's what it is, okay? Not peace. I'll tell you this. If you have order, harmony, balance, and things are going well, you'll have peace, right? That's Shalom. Now, the Hebrews had bought into the culture. We're going to be studying that when we get to Exodus because we'll prove, again, unequivocally that they bought into that culture. So what they're seeing as they're looking at this story, they're saying God is giving us peace. He's giving us shalom, and it's more than like peace. Peace. It's order, harmony, balance, and they're in the midst of chaos. See, this gets interesting. Where are they? They're in the desert. They're where the scorpions are. There's where the snakes are. And in Egypt, you don't go out there. You say, you're going to follow this desert God, this God of Moses, and he's going to take you into chaos? This is crazy. So from the Egyptian point of view, that whole concept of the Exodus is nuts. But here are the Hebrews, we don't know how many, that first generation and into the second generation, they realize they're in chaos, and what do we have? Shalom. God fed them, he clothed them, he led them, everything. They had nothing to worry about. The Hebrews didn't really always appreciate it very much. And Mike, you're right, because rebellion, you know, a couple of times. So so in chaos, they're fed, watered. They have direction, blessing, safe from uh, their enemies. And Emmanuel, God with us. All right, the Hebrew, Emmanuel, God is with us. And he did, he was with them. He tells Moses, build me a tabernacle and I will dwell with my people. So that's a possibility as they're looking at the story. Because remember, it's written to them, not to you. They're the first hearers. So how, po and I'm saying how possibly did they hear it? We don't know. We don't have any writing, so it's a guess. Now here's another one. What about the Jews in Jesus' day? Now this is new. I haven't done this in four semesters so far. How would the Jews in Jesus' day see this? They've got the rest of the Bible. They've got the Tanakh. They've got the Torah. They've got the prophets. They've got the writings. They've got the whole Old Testament. For them, they might say, yep, we understand how we got here. We understand how we got to Egypt now. It was the story of Joseph, okay, and Judah and Tamar. So we're understanding this. So they're understanding it. But what's interesting then is this. 
They might be looking at the story and they have the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, we're going to read some verses that are really intriguing. The Hebrews, who are coming out of Egypt, first and second generation, didn't have Ezekiel. That's much later on. But the Jews in Jesus' day had Ezekiel. So I'm in Ezekiel chapter 20, and I'm going to start in verse 5. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, thus says Yahweh Elohim, in the day when I chose Israel and lifted up my hand to the seed of the house of Yaakov, the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Mitzrayim, in the land of Egypt, when I lifted my hand to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in the day that I lifted up my hand to them to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim into a land that I had spied out for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is an ornament for all, their, for all the lands. Then I said to them, Cat, now listen to this, cast away every man the abominations of his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Mitzrayim. In other words, get rid of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but... They rebelled against me and would not hearken to me. They did not cast away every man the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Mitzrayim, the gods of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Mitzrayim. Stop. The Hebrews would not give up their worship, their adoration of the Egyptian gods. So what did God do? raised up a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and put the Hebrews in slavery and in bondage. That's what it says. Let's continue. But I acted for my namesake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known to them, in bringing them out of the land of Mitzrayim. And I caused them to go out of the land. I caused them to go. How do you get, how do you get the Hebrews to leave Egypt? When you study Egypt and you study in the Middle Kingdom, and especially the Middle Kingdom, and in the New this place is fantastic. I mean, it's when you compare, for instance, when you think about the United States and all the people who want to come to the United States, you think about this is the land of the free and they're the land of opportunity. You can, anybody can become president, as they say, okay? This is Egypt. That's what it was like then. Well, obviously, it's ancient times and so on. But Egypt was that, it's a, it, you have regular flooding of the Nile. You have regular great agricultural seasons. Oh yeah, you had chaos coming every once in a while. But why leave? Why go back to Canaan? Canaan is a land that depends upon the rain. There is no rain in Egypt. It doesn't rain there. Maybe two inches a year. How did they get their water? The Nile. You want to study Egypt? Study the Nile. If you study the Nile, you'll study Egypt. Okay, you'll know Egypt. The Nile is Egypt and Egypt is the Nile. It's everything. And I gave them, so I caused them to go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them, I brought them into the wilderness. I brought them into chaos. Exactly what the Egyptians say is crazy. And I gave them my statutes and my judgments. I made note to them, which if a man do, he may live by them. Moreover them, I gave them my Sabbaths to be assigned between me and them that they may know that I am the Lord your God who sanctifies them. By the way, so they rebelled. 
God pulled them, they rebelled. And in that rebellion, he gets them out of Egypt and he saves them by grace. They didn't deserve to be delivered at all. And so all of a sudden we have the salvation by grace. And I find this interesting because all of a sudden I remember Jesus' words. Understanding shalom. Now remember, the words I'm using for shalom are, it represents order, harmony, balance, things going well. And if you have everything going well and an order and peace and harmony, you will have peace. So it's more than peace. Jesus, the book of John, chapter 14, verse 27. You know this. But he spoke Hebrew, not English, and not Greek. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He said, shalom I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let you be fearful. That is, is amazing to me because it's the story of the Hebrews in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, you live in chaos. You live in evil times. We do. We live in difficult times. And what does Jesus say? I will give you shalom. In your life, even in the midst of chaos, you will have order, you will have harmony. Things will work well. And even when they're really, really difficult, I will be with you. So you will have that assurance that I am with you. And finally, there's Judah Tamar's story, the design of God, because all of a sudden, we began to see the story of Joseph, who we know, every one of us know, that he is the savior of the world for the bread of the earth, for wheat. And he saved Israel. And Judah is the beginning of the story of all the ancestors of Judah, who were the ancestors of Jesus, who's the savior of the world because he's the bread from heaven. And all of a sudden we get the tie-in again that we talked about in the book Mashiach ben Yosef by Al-Hanan ben Avraham from Nativia Ministries in Israel, where he talks about, if you want to know Jesus, look at Joseph. If you study Joseph, you'll see the Messiah. We finally can come to some, I think, some conclusions about the chapter 38, which is the focus all about Judah and Tamar. We still do not have any precise, exact answer as to why. God did not give us that statement anywhere. We have no definite answer why this was brought up now. It could have been brought up later. Matter of fact, we'd say, why it wasn't brought up later? Right? Why here? But there's some amazing connections. And again, we have wonderful scholars, both Jew Jewish and Christian scholars, who have shown us uh, some of these amazing connections, the leap motifs of this act of the overall opera of redemption. And what I find in conclusion is this. Chapter 39, which we're about ready to start, is the beginning of the life of Joseph in Egypt because that life led him to save the world. And chapter 38 
which is about Judah, is the beginning of the story of the ancestors of Jesus who came to save the world. To me, okay, and all of a sudden here's where I throw my view on it, I like that connection. I like because they're both stories are beginning right now. So with that, we're finished with 38. One is like the physical, the physical savior, which is Joseph. And the other one is the spiritual savior. I find the same thing, Mike, when I take a look at the two Passover meals. There's a Passover meal that the Jewish people have on the 15th of Nisan after the lambs are slain. Okay, and that's to remember what God did for them in Egypt. Okay, call it a political social deliverance. It's got nothing to do with sin, nothing. However, Jesus has a Passover meal the night before. It's not connected to the Torah because he's doing it on the wrong night. But it seems as if, by his own words, that it's a Passover meal because he tells his guys, hey, prepare the Passover for me. Nobody comes up and says, well, Jesus, is the wrong night. Maybe they even thought it was going to be the next night. But anyway, they're having the night before. One is a Passover meal to remember the redemption of all mankind and that the blood on the wood of the cross will save us from the wrath of God on all the nations. Where the other Passover is the redemption of God, of his people, when he sees the blood on the wood, so he will save them you know, from his wrath coming upon Egypt. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Nowhere. In the Greek, Jesus is the Passover. Now, it's very interesting. When you go to the Torah, I won't go there now. I didn't mean to do this. But you can actually, God will say, here's my Passover. And then in a paragraph, he describes what it is. God says, here's my Passover. And then Jesus is the Passover. You say, uh, wait a minute. If I take this definition, I get it. However, one is national, Israel, and the other one is spiritual, all nations. It's amazing stuff. So, it seems likely that the Judah and Tamar story is a way that God is showing us that he's engineering his plan of redemption. As Joseph is the savior of the world, with the bread of the earth, so we see, perhaps, that God wants us to see the beginnings of the ancestors of Jesus, who's going to be the coming Savior of the world, of Jew and Gentile alike, through himself, the bread of heaven, as he says in John chapter 6. So maybe that's why this interruption is here in Genesis. It seems likely. And even Nahum Sarna, Dennis Prager, Jewish scholars, all seem to even say, since Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, maybe this is the engineering plan of God showing the coming of Messiah. Amazing. Now, in Lesson 90, we're going to be returning to Egypt, and we're going to see that Joseph becomes second in command in the household of Potiphar, in Potiphar's household. And we're going to read specifically 
that the word of God says that God was with Joseph. So the Torah is being very clear. This is all part of God's plan. And so the Hebrews coming out of Egypt would clearly understand this. Now we understand how we got here, and this was all part of God's plan. But we're actually going to study some really fascinating stuff. The actual dates when Joseph was in Egypt, and when we study those dates, based upon real archaeology, the real archaeology matter of fact, of ancient Assyria back in the 8th century B.C., and we're dealing perhaps in the 19th century B.C. with the story of Joseph. This is amazing stuff. And we're going to see that we're going to see perhaps the names of the pharaohs that Joseph served under, and with the real archaeology of Egypt and the Middle East and real history, we're going to see and see again that the Bible is amazingly true. So I'll see you definitely in Lesson 90. Don't miss this one. And we'll remember in Luke 24:50 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father, just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing. That blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses to Aaron to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkeinu Yair Adonai Panava Aleinu Bekunekeinu Isa Adonai Panavalenu Viasem Lanu Shalom. Bishem Yeshua Adonenu Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us, and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.